Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of the New York Documentary Festival, Doc NYC. I also program for the Miami Film Festival that took place a few weeks ago in March. I took that opportunity to interview the Miami-based filmmakers Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman. They run the company Raconteur and are best known for their films on the drug trade, especially cocaine cowboys. We joke now that, you know, the first call everybody makes when they get out of prison is to their mother and their second call is to Raconteur. Billy and Alfred met as teenagers growing up in Miami. Their first documentary was called Raw Deal, about an alleged rape at a college fraternity that was filmed on home video. They were only 22 years old when Raw Deal was invited to the Sundance Film Festival in 2001. They followed up five years later with Cocaine Cowboys that was a huge hit on DVD. The film interviews participants in Miami's drug trade from the 1980s. It has a tabloidy feel, but is underpinned by solid reporting. It's the top film I recommend for anyone visiting Miami. Their subsequent films include Square Grouper, about Miami's marijuana trade, Limelight, about the New York club scene, and ESPN's The U and The U Part Two about the University of Miami football team. On all these films, they divide their duties with Billy Corbin as director and Alfred Spellman as producer. Our interview focuses on the making of Cocaine Cowboys, which spawned a sequel, Cocaine Cowboys 2, and another film, Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded. I interviewed Billy and Alfred at their office in Miami Beach and started by asking what led to Cocaine Cowboys. Well, at the time, we had made Raw Deal, which was really kind of like the indie filmmaker fairy tale story. We started shooting Raw Deal, which was about an alleged rape at a fraternity house at the University of Florida, in April. And we shot April, May, June, edited July, August, September, submitted a rough cut in October. And in November, we got a call from John Sloss saying, get your parkas, you know, Miami boys, you're going to Sundance. So literally, it was a nine-month process from the time we started shooting the time we're sitting in Park City with this with this with this documentary and it it we didn't own parkas or (laughs) or have snow boots we were we were Miami guys I knew water skiing I didn't know anything about about snow skiing and we were editing on the one of the first versions of Final Cut Pro ever it was a nightmare and you were how old 21. 21 when we were editing, yeah. And um, so we go to Sundance, and we're 22 years old, and the kind of the only, at the time, we were the only filmmakers ever from Miami invited to Sundance. And so the film blows up there in terms of controversy. It's on the cover of the New York Post, who reported a bidding war that never actually happened, but uh, Jeremy Walker did a great job as our publicist. And we also weren't done editing it. We, we weren't done editing the movie. I mean, because we had just... That's true of every Sundance film. Well, but well, we came up with the idea to make, to do the doc in January of 2000, and then we're premiering January of 2001 at Sundance. That was a pretty head-spinning turnaround time, especially especially for a doc. And so I remember being on Final Cut Pro and, and uh, working on it and not stopping. And Alfred's like, and I just couldn't, I wasn't finished yet. And Alfred says, uh, well, my mom was like, we got to go shopping, you know, for parkas and things. And we got to go to Burlington Code Factory, whatever the hell you had, we had down here at the time. And uh, Alfred said, well, we're now a week out. 
and print traffic is calling for the master tape because they like it, what is it, minimum like two weeks. And I'm like, I'm not finished yet. And Alfred said one of the great lines that I remember from the history of nonlinear editing, he says, you don't have to finish, but you have to stop. And so I said, okay, I found some solace in that, meaning like you're just gonna pick up when you get back and you know, and, and where you left off and keep and keep going. So so that's that's five days out of the festival, I think we delivered. So we get there, we have a big, big reception, and we, we sell the film, and and, uh, and everybody says to us, Are you, the agents and managers start calling, you guys going to New York or L.A.? Somebody called us the Bells of the Sundance Ball. And I said, are you New York or L.A.? Where are you going to go? And we said, we want to go back to Miami and tell stories from our hometown, because we really saw Miami as kind of this untapped play. Nobody was making films from here. In the 90s, everybody came here. It was a big location town, bad boys and the specialists. So we had all these Hollywood crews coming in. But the, Miami is so rich in terms of characters and, and stories to tell. And nobody, nobody in Florida, is, you know, was of our parents' generation anyway, was ever from Florida. You know, you'd ask someone in Miami, where are you from? Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, Baltimore. Everybody was from someplace else. So we were actually from Florida. I'm a Florida native and a Miami and lifelong Miami. And Alfred's a, a, a native Miami Beachian, which uh, there's not that many, not many of those. Um, is it beachite? Is it be which? What is it? I don't Never know. clarified that. But um, or biatch. <laughs> well played, Tom. Well played. Um, but but we sort of I always say like after Sundance, as obvious as it was to all the press that like now that we had arrived that we were going to go to New York or Los Angeles, it was just as obvious to us that we would go home. I always think because first of all, home is where you go when you're done with other shit. That's why they call it home. So, and the, and the second was, is that we, we thought that the gamble we wanted to take or, or the brand we wanted to build was based somewhat uh, on the geography, you know, uh, like Shyamalan did and, 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 and Barry Levinson and John Waters did in Baltimore and, and uh, Rick Linklater in, in Austin and, and Robert Rodriguez as well. And, and of course, any number, Woody Allen or Spike Lee or Scorsese in New York. And so we just wanted to have that. We wanted to be the Miami guys. We, we didn't want to be two more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or L.A. We wanted people to go, oh, those are those Miami guys. So at least we would have some identity. And this was right around the time where Grand Theft Auto Vice City became the biggest selling video game of all time. And uh, I think Michael Mann had just announced he was going to do the, the Miami Vice film finally. And Scarface was the biggest selling DVD, I think, in Universal history at the time. They said, we were told at one point that Scarface had outsold E.T. and Jurassic Park combined on DVD. And so we thought, well, it's 2003 now, you know, this is a good time and with the benefit of 20, 25 years of, of, of hindsight, you know, now's the time to kind of tell the, 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 the real Scarface, you know, the story of Miami as it, as it got built in the 70s. It was really obvious to us, like, like it was staring us right in the face or anybody who watched MTV's Cribs would know that it was staring you right in the face. It was time to, in the nostalgia cycle, to do something like this. And so with our, with our newfound kind of access and celebrity in the in, indie film doc world, we went out and pitched everybody that we could think of at the time on on a doc that was called city made of snow was what it was called um and and how did that go like a fart in a submarine is how is, <laughs> so. we couldn't get a dollar i mean here we are we have this big press kit now you know we think we're going to new york and la we're talking to these scientists and everybody said to us well you know blow had come out you know a couple years before well, we can just kind of saw this with blow it's scarface we've kind of seen this you know what is this really about and we couldn't get a dime so no one was giving you money for this you decided to just forge ahead anyways yeah we basically irregardless <laughs> as, as the miami kids so say we went out we bought we bought some cameras went out and we started doing interviews for the project and as we started doing interviews, we cut a reel, started putting money together. And I, so we ended up shooting for most of, uh, I think, 03 and into 04. 
And at one point, Billy and Dave were editing. We were working, we worked very hard on access. We were great with, with, with on access. And so that's why we felt so confident about, about the project and moving ahead. Are we already, are we already into post? Well, yeah. Let me, I want to ask about access because the first question I want to ask is how much is, of this story did you know? You know, how much could you access through either articles or had anyone written a book? And, and how much were you learning as you went? It was shocking to me how little had been written about this period. There were essentially two books. There was Kings of Cocaine written by Jeff Lean, who was a Miami Herald reporter, and then another book, The Cocaine Wars, which was written by a few British journalists who had come over uh, in 87 and had kind of chronicled this era. And then there was Max Mermelstein's book, which was the only first-person account called The Man Who Made It Snow. All out of print at the time, incidentally. Right. And, and there's no Kindle, really, or any. We're on Half.com buying old paperbacks for pennies. And the Miami Herald's archive is only digitized beginning in 1982. So you couldn't find any, I mean, unless you went down, which we did, to the main library downtown and sit in the basement for weeks going through microfilm, you know, pulling stories of the 79 Dateland shootout, and, you know, and I, but I mean, everything that happens from 78, 79, 80, 81 leads up to, you know, 81 kind of culminates with the murder rate, 635 people murdered in one year in Miami with a covered uh, story in Time Magazine, Paradise Lost, but none of that was available digitally at the time and, and still isn't. So it's a pleasure to be on a podcast where the, the follow-up question is not, what is microfilm. So so we spent a lot of time doing research and really what we ended up with um, were kind of archetypes. That's that's how we decided to, to kind of proceed. So we we had the first person we met was John Roberts and he introduced us to Mickey Monday. So now we So have, let's just set the yeah. scene here. John Roberts is John Roberts is a New York born um, uh, guy Italian. with Italian gangster background who moves down to Miami in the uh, mid 1970s and gets involved in the cocaine business pretty quickly. And by his late 20s at that point had already been affiliated with Italian uh, crime families in New York and now the the Colombian uh, Medellin cartel. So two of the largest and most notorious uh, you know criminal organizations in history this this kid is involved in. Here's John Roberts in Cocaine Cowboys. I told him I outgrew the Cubans and it became a necessity to find a Colombian that could supply the large amounts that were needed at the time. And he said, well, I'm going to hook you up. I can take you to uh, these Colombians that I know and this guy can give you whatever you want. And I'd heard stories like that many times. So I just said, sure, whenever you're ready, let me know. And we drove to Sunny Isles, Florida. And we go into this house. There was about five or six Colombians there, all like loaded to bear. When I say loaded, they were strapped. They had pistols, machine guns, and they were all standing around. And at that point, I realized this, you know, this guy's serious. This is for real, because people just don't stand around like that. And I meet this little guy. He can't be more than five foot four, five foot five. And he introduces himself, and he says, my name is Rafa. And he's telling me, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, man. And if you got some money, uh, I'll front you twice the amount of money that you come with. And I said, well, you know, show me something. He takes me in this back room, he pushes a button, and a whole wall opens up like this. And I had never seen so much cocaine in my entire life just sitting behind this wall. And he was a figure that you knew from other reports that you had read, and you reached out to well, him. Well, we were actually introduced to him. And then to verify his story, I remember Billy came to me and said, hey, you know, there's this guy, John, do you know who he be? He said he was in the co and Max Mermelstein had written about him in the book, The Man Who Made It Snow. So that's how we were able to kind of verify who this guy was, because unless you get indicted, there's really kind of no, you know, paper trail of who you are, what you're involved in. So everybody's got a, you know, it's a, like a fishing tale. You know, everybody's got a story. So that was how we verified him. And through him, he introduced us to Mickey Monday. And Mickey is this 
born and raised Florida, uh, a character when they called Miami, Miami back in those days. And um, he was a pilot and he, he was basically Federal Express for the Medellin cartel. And so, so now we had the, the trafficker, now we had the, you know, the distributor, the kingpin character in John Roberts, who was in charge of distributing cocaine, working with, with a, people from Medellin distributing cocaine in the country. And we had the pilot to bring it here. And we did, the, those are the first two interviews that we shot. And we're sitting here, okay, we got this Italian guy, and we got this redneck character from Florida, but we're making this movie about Colombians and we need, you know, how it do was, we not have a Colombian It was character? fun because it was a real fish out of water, you know, fishes plural out of water tale. You know, they, they were sort of getting accustomed to these, to these Colombian guys. And and they were they were white guys and Italian guys and so the, but the issue was is well I remember when we named the company Raconteur the one of the alternatives on the list was first person productions and because I I, I think this the strength of of the genre is is with the the I and the we not the they and the he because it's always easy or easier to get a you know a, a journalist or a cop or a lawyer who will tell you a story about a case or a client um, but to get sort of to get it from the horse's mouth I think was obviously the advantage here. And so we were trying to do that with as many of the subjects as, as possible. Here's pilot Mickey Monday. At this particular time, I'm in a boat. I'm talking to my friends in the apartment. Lo and behold, here comes this U.S. Customs and U.S. Coast Guard. The guy's got an M16 rifle. We didn't think they were after us, but they were checking boats. Now, I'm in a boat that's loaded. But when he pulls up alongside of me, the motor on his boat's going bang, 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 bang. bang. Jeez, that sounds terrible. He said, oh, it's been doing that since yesterday. Oh, oh God. And he turns around, and, and he don't get 100 feet from me, and he's boom. I thought he shot the rifle or something. And it, was, it caught the wave just perfect. The piston comes out through the side of the motor and skips on a wave. It looked like some kid throwing a rock. And a big flame out the side. Just lights everything up. I go, God damn. <laughs> And they're on the radio. Well, they can't get anybody. Said, well, this is superior equipment. Now I'm worried about these guys. I said, you guys need a tow. And I threw them a line, and they got on my boat, and I towed the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Customs. But we're in a boat that had 350, 400 kilos in it. The young lady that was up in the apartment said only I would, anybody else would have panicked and probably jumped overboard. It's kind of extraordinary watching Cocaine Cowboys that these people are willing to tell so many stories on themselves of really illegal behavior. Uh, and, I, you know, and I'd love to hear what your experiences are teasing those stories out. Well, I think the first thing is, like I said before, we had the benefit of 20 or 25 years Timing, hindsight. Yeah. Though at the, the time, everybody had just gotten out of prison within the past few years. These were Otherwise kind of, known as the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations also plays a big role in, in these stories. We have we're, no, no statute of limitations on murder, though. Right. So, but... Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's part of that. And then, you know, I think that, that everybody is, you know, you get older in life and you kind of look back on your, on your years, you know, you, you want something written or made maybe about, you know, if you've had lived an interesting life. Uh, and so I think that, you know, that appeals to a lot of people as well, uh, despite the, you know, what maybe Even though you were coming to them, it's not like you're saying we're making an ESPN documentary or an HBO documentary. Like we're a couple of kids in our 20s making a documentary. I think what appealed to both of them was and we always say this when we when we approach people, you know, our goal is to know more about their lives than they remember. You know, so if we go and we do interviews with people, you know, we build such extensive Bibles and research of, you know, from as much material as possible. So we had their indictments. We had the FBI reports. We, we basically knew who these guys were. 
her. And that was even more so when we finally got um, Jorge uh, Riviayala, the, the hitman who we uh, eventually interviewed. He gave a 1,300-page deposition in the case to avoid, he agreed to testify against Griselda Blanco to avoid the death penalty. And so as a result, he was given immunity to tell, which which made him such a unique character because normally when you would you know, get a, uh, one of the uh, killers from this era, you know, they'd been sent to jail or prison for one particular homicide. And so they don't want to talk, about, want to talk about any of the others. So, so Rivi was so unique because he had this immunity deal and could tell chapter and verse of all of these homicides that he had committed. There, there were other hitmen that we reached out to. Alfred was pen pals with all of the Colombian hitmen who were still alive and, and, uh, and in the, uh, in the state system somewhere in the country. And they, they just couldn't, talk because they were serving time for this homicide or maybe two homicides, but then Florida has the death penalty and no statute of limitations. So if they were to speak too candidly, they could, you know, or, or, or show their hand, they could be extradited and charged and, and potentially sentenced to death. So that was certainly a barrier uh, on, on this project. But I, I, I think to, to the point about timing is that, you know, stories ripen. Some stories take a little bit longer uh, than others and, and others are, you know, you're kind of a year out and people, you know, need to need the catharsis of, of, of telling that story. And so this just, this was one that, that took a little bit longer, but just the timing seemed to be right, both in terms of the marketplace uh, and in terms of the willingness of, of, of the participants to actually tell their stories. And how did you cross check stories? Because a lot of these stories are so mythological that, uh, you know, they're hard to believe. They sound like someone on a bar stool uh, boasting. Well, Again, uh, we had uh, we had. Well, that's that's like my that's the pa- that's the great pastime of, of South Florida. Florida in general is that you know you 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 sit at your pool, you know, at like your condo, or like you sit at a at a bar and like you just sit next to the crustiest guy you can find and just strike up a conversation. And invariably, they're a former drug smuggler, you know, a, a, a former you know a deposed third world leader, you know, like this is just a lot of alligator wrestling. Yeah, this is just the characters that are that are around here, and, and I think part of the fun and and, and we we learned taught ourselves this lesson on on our first doc on Raw Deal, which is really like a criminal case that played itself out with witnesses for both sides, with videotape evidence uh, that would either support or refute both sides. And the way we looked at it is that we really see audience as jury. And so while we do our best to vet everything we can and and don't suborn perjury or, or, or knowingly kind of put forth any any falsehood, part of the fun of the experience for the audience is to look at someone and go, that guy's full of shit. And that's what the jury does. They're the fact finder. So you get to gauge the trustworthiness of a given person. Sometimes we'll intercut them with another subject who's refuting, you know, their interview or their testimony. And then that's part and parcel of, of the experience that the audience has. So we do our best. But part of the fun is if we can't quite nail it down. It's like, do we include it? Don't we include it? And then we'll, we'll sort of debate it uh, in, in, internally. And sometimes it's just more fun for the audience to go like, I, that guy's full of shit. And on Cocaine Cowboys, it was it was fairly easy because the FBI and DEA had done such an extensive investigation into John and Mickey Pryor. So when we went to the FBI office, they had photos and photos of when they went to the ranch and there's these buried suitcases full of all this cash. And there was there was a ton and of- And was that easy to access? Were, were, was the FBI uh, happy to cooperate with you guys? Yeah, pretty much. We didn't really have, we don't, we didn't get much pushback from anybody on that. A it lot was of a it, successful case. Yeah, right. So well, it's, it's, that, it's right. not- So, you know, there's, case. you know, uh, we made some FOIA requests 
tests and we were able to get, uh, you know, and, and the state, Florida, had, had had some very liberal public records laws. Uh, the legislature continues to try to chip away at that, it seems like, almost every session now. But um, that allowed us to get a lot of the materials uh, to support Rivi's story on the other side. So we were very lucky to have kind of this corroboration from prosecutors and, and investigators uh, that really allowed us to, to verify a lot of the, the information. So when Cocaine Cowboys comes out, it gets it's really well received by audiences. How was it processed within the world of people who are in this drug industry? Oh, well, it, it became it became a, a classic for people in the in the industry. Everybody wanted their story told. We joke now that, you know, the first call everybody makes when they get out of prison is to their mother and their second call is to Raconteur. <laughs> uh, that's become that's become kind of a, a, a running joke because everybody would come up to us afterwards and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you made this with that guy, John, and make, my cousin, my uncle flew this plane and this route, and oh, you didn't talk to my, my nephew. My nephew was the kingpin. He was the boss. So everybody in Miami's got it. And I remember shortly after it came out, there was a drug bust, I think, in one of the boroughs in, in New York, and the, the, the authorities went out of their way to, to, to reference... Uh, yes, the Scarface poster on the wall, but there was a bootleg DVD of Cocaine Cowboys in the DVD player at the time of the drug bust. But uh, but and and it's funny actually because most people now looking back say oh well Cocaine Cowboys kind of become one of these doc cult you know uh, classic films and uh, it wasn't received that way at the time I mean we opened it really the, it really the, wasn't the film premiered at Tribeca in April and then of 06. Of, of 06. and then I remember we opened October twenty sixth two thousand six. And we opened in 15 markets, and we made bupkis. I mean, we made maybe 100 grand, 150 grand. And Tom markets. Quinn at Magnolia was really one of the few people who saw it and said, like, we need to release this. Like, we need to do something with this. He got it. But theatrically, it was a total failure. And we had spent the radio ads. I mean, we were upside down. And the DVD was coming out in January of 07. And thank God it came out in January of 07 as opposed to January of 08 because we— You lived. remember you remember DVDs, Tom, those round <laughs> discs <laughs> with right. the holes in the middle we, that would have we, media on it? We caught the last wave of the DVD boom, and I'll never forget one of the one of the conversations we had with Magnolia before deciding to go with them. There were only actually two companies interested in Cocaine Cowboys. It was Magnolia and ThinkFilm, and so thank God we went with Magnolia. <laughs> but um, we were we were we were, and the reason we actually went with Magnolia was because since we, I should clarify, ThinkFilm went bankrupt, and everyone who had their films in that catalog is now caught in a bankruptcy. I wasn't going to go into the whole. That's a great episode, though, at some point. <laughs> um, but um, the reason we went with Magnolia is because they had their own DVD operation. ThinkFilm was sub-licensing their DVD operation to Lionsgate. So there was another middleman taking a, you know, a chunk of money. And we knew that Cocaine Cowboys, if distributed properly, would blow up on DVD. And so to that end, one of the first conversations we had with Magnolia was said, look, if you market this as a DVD in Best Buy and it's next to the Pilates videos in the special interest section, we're not going to do anything with this. But if you market this as a gangster movie, and not as a documentary, it's a gangster movie, and convince the merchandisers at Best Buy and Circuit City, <laughs> they were around, uh, you know, that this is a gangster movie, then we think that we could have a hit. And that, so, that's how we approached the, the making of the movie. It wasn't like, how are we going to make this documentary? It was like, this is a gangster movie, and let's treat it that way aesthetically and, and all the way through. And uh, and obviously, the distributor needed to, to buy into that in order to effectively market it, we felt. Well, I think that's something that's hugely disarming about the film. And when it first came out in 2006, Six, I didn't get it because it looked very tabloidy uh, to me. I, you know, I don't think I watched the whole thing uh, through. And it, it wasn't until years later that, when I was spending more time in Miami, that I 
took a serious look at it and then like realized that it's this kind of secret history of Miami being couched in this tabloid style. Well, that goes back to the title. I mean, originally we, we were, you know, we thought of ourselves as, you know, documentaries, you know, sophisticated documentary filmmakers with a sun sociologists. Yeah. We are historians. Right. So somebody called us a cult, cultural anthropologist one time, which I really like. But, you know, to be fair, the Sundance experience, as extraordinary as it is, paid no one's rent. And we, we you know, we were interested in, in eating at some point. We were hungry. So we called uh, So the original title, City Made of Snow, which was this, you know, this thesis that we were, and I remember at one point Billy and I were looking at titles and obviously Coke and Cowboys was a phrase. I mean, we didn't invent the phrase. It was, it was popularized during the time. We said, well, this is what we have to call it. And we said, if we do this right, there's kind of an uptown, downtown audience for this. The uptown audience, the New Yorker crowd could debate the thesis of whether this major metropolitan American city was built on the back of a narcotics industry during the time we were fighting a war on drugs. And the downtown crowd will appreciate the pulpy, true crime nature of this hitman telling these and these the, drug traffickers telling these the stories. The downtown crowd, so to speak, are the ones that discovered it, embraced it, bootlegged it, proselytized about it. Then later, when it was on Showtime, when it was on CNBC, there was a an older, more sophisticated uh, demo that was introduced to it. But, you know, I felt, and because at the time we were 25, we were 25 when we, you know, when, when we made it, uh, I felt that, that the approach needed to be consistent with the audience that we felt was going to actually uh, actually going to, to, to make or break it and us as Miami filmmakers. How would you characterize being filmmakers in Miami in the last 10 years? I feel like there's different forces that are happening in Miami. I think there's a cultural entrepreneurialism that's happening uh, here with things like millennials, like the people who started the Borscht Film Festival. You see this other kind of respectability coming in with Art Basel. Mm -hmm. um, now Moonlight has uh, planted a flag here. So what's it been like for you? What you have to remember about Miami is that no matter what, no matter which of those topics you're talking about, everything here is a real estate hustle or a tourism hustle at the end of the day. So while Art Basel is a fantastic event and really draws the world's art collectors and people associating the art world to Miami, it's a real estate play. It's a tourism play. And so almost all of these things that, you, that you've named, Jack, are the Borscht Film Festival started by kids like kids who are 10 years younger than us, who came up kind of what, you know, some of the, a, a lot of them, yeah, yeah, a lot of them went to New World School of the Arts and said, oh, we're doing this because of you. You inspired us to, to do what which makes you feel awfully old. Uh, <laughs> you're old enough to inspire anybody uh, to do anything. One of the producers on Moonlight, actually, who, who put Terrell and Barry together, started out as a, worked as an editor for us. Andrew for, Hevia. For, for yeah. a couple of years. Andrew, yeah, who was on stage. All of a sudden, I turned on the Oscars. He's on stage, so which it's is so incredible. Great. And so, uh, yeah, I was thrilled for the Moonlight kids. I mean, it was just incredible. And all due respect, we just came back from Los Angeles. The more time I spend there, the happier I am that Moonlight beat La La Land. I just need to say that for the record. <laughs> but um, so when you, you know, when you hear these things about the cultural renaissance of Miami, you know, you have to view a little bit of it skeptically because you do recognize that that most of these stories are, are publicist packaged stories designed to drive the next real estate boom or the next tourism. I'll say to be fair, the, the filmmaking, though, has been one of the few legit organic That's right. movements. Um, you know, because they're indigenous filmmakers. And that's the toughest thing here is that there haven't been uh, indigenous filmmakers. You know, we haven't, well, we talked about earlier about how to bring it full circle, you know, how people haven't been from Miami. They've always been from someplace else. When you ask someone where you're from, my parents, it's, it, it's true of them. Uh, Alfred's parents, it's true of them. So um, now you have kids who are of the 305 till I die 
uh, era and and third, fourth generation Cubans, Haitians, Jewish kids, white, all kinds of people who were actually from Miami were born uh, in Miami. And so you have people who, who, well, you know, we had a few, a few filmmakers like Brett Ratner, but Brett's huge. So like, yeah, he'll make a project here every once in a while, but he's not a Miami filmmaker. Michael Bay, who, who has a home here, but, and does some projects here, but isn't, you know, he, he, his home base is, is big budget studio movies. But now you have the Borscht kids and, uh, and Barry Jenkins and Terrell McCraney, who are Miami guys or Miami filmmakers. And are now, because there's not a lot of tourism that comes out of a $1.5 million indie film like Moonlight, you know, so, so interestingly, you don't get a lot of respect in advance. Now, of course, it's like, you know, look at what they did. And, and, and now, now you can't Wait get to a, those Liberty City bus tours. Yeah, you, you can't get a seat at Jimmy's Diner on the boulevard for crying. You could, it was hard enough before. Now it's impossible. Um, but yeah, I mean, we went from nobody to a billion people hearing Lib- about Liberty City in, in one speech, you know, in, in seconds at the Oscars. And it's, it's kind of wonderful. And, and, um, it's an under Liberty City is an underserved community. Uh, the Miami filmmaking community is an underserved, uh, a community and it doesn't get the love that, um, that, that our Basel, for example, gets because it doesn't mean hotel room nights. And that's what the economy is, is built on down. It's like, how many hotel nights do you need? It's like that's what it's all that's what it's all about. And, and are you bringing people to town to buy condos? Right. That's real. That's really helpful too. And we don't care where those people are from, and we don't, and we especially don't care where their money's from. And we don't even care that they live there. Uh, Hell no. In fact, it would create. We a prefer problem. them not to actually. Yeah, that's that. Oh, like no, but like look at downtown Miami. All that, all that. You know, they're at capacity. It's like it's like so. So the lights are off in everybody's home. How does that? How does that work? You know, and and no, but that's Alfred's right. That that's our hustle. You know, and 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 it's tough to it's tough to make filmmaking your hustle down here. It it always was. I mean, even when we were when we were kids and we went to Sundance, we never had business cards that said like filmmaker. Well, first of all, if you have business cards that say filmmaker in Miami, people call you to do key says bar mitzvahs circumcisions and we don't want you know we want to have to say no thanks we don't we don't do that but we were almost embarrassed because it was such a hustler's paradise that it was like oh you're a producer too i know this producer it's like well that's that guy hasn't produced anything he just has a business card that says he was a producer i, I in in college I, I dated a girl who went to ucf and sent university of central florida in orlando so i would make that trip all the time in the mid to late 90s i'd go up the florida turnpike and so i'd go to the rest stops on the turnpike and in the rest stops i'll never forget this they had a we'll call it a vending machine it was like an arc game size machine with a screen, a QWERTY keyboard, and a printer. And what you could do there on the Florida Turnpike, anytime, 24 hours a day, was customize your own stationery, envelopes, letterhead, business cards. So literally on your way down the state, you could be anything you wanted to be. You could make yourself anything you wanted to be at all and have, and have the card and the letterhead to, to show for it. Paradise for swindlers and grifters. I want to thank Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman for speaking with me. You can watch Cocaine Cowboys and its sequels on Netflix. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Sound mixer, Kyle Murphy. Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo. Social media master, Jordan Smith and executive producer, Raphaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York, check out our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at IFC Center. The spring season begins April 18th. You can read our show notes, 
learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.